one semester of law school. One semester of criminal justice. Two experts. I'm Kristen Caruso. I'm Brandi Egan. Let's go to court. On this episode, I'll talk about a cake maker who didn't want to make a cake. And I'll be talking about an old-timey kidnapping. Yay! Oh, I'm taking it back to my roots! I shouldn't say I love kidnappings, because I don't. But the story, yeah, I'm always intrigued. This is, this is the old-timiest kidnapping that I have covered. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, I'm worried that our mics are... Okay, pull your mic closer to you, would you? I'm afraid yeah, we're it, too would close Would you like me to put it inside of my body? <laughs> <laughs> close to me. We've had a number of reviews that say that that's exactly what's <laughs> happening on this podcast. I was going to say nobody has complained that the mic is too far from me, Krista. <laughs> no, I'm worried that our mics, you know, we're just sitting a little closer together yeah, than usual. We've got like a new a new arrangement here. Yeah, we sure do. Don't know how. Quit, <laughs> quit caressing this table. This table has been in Norman's family for many years. <laughs> you know what people should do? Should they uh, join our Patreon? Uh, they totally should. You know why? Because it's super cool and only super cool people are invited. That's right. It's a, it's a, the bouncer at the Patreon club is like, do you have $5? And if not, you have to walk away. That's right. If you don't have $5, you can't get in. If you have $7, you get into the Supreme Court. And the bouncer says that as he lets you in the door. <laughs> Um, no, the reason I bring this up is because we just recently released our bonus episode. Bonus episode numero dos. That's number two for our non-bilinguals out there. <laughs> In that episode, I covered the case. I don't know if anyone's going to remember. Homolingos? What did I say? No, would that be a, would that be someone who speaks only one language? A homolingo? <laughs> I don't think so. Wouldn't it be monolingo? Yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking like bisexual. Oh, and okay, great. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, what were you saying? It was way more important than what I was saying. What I was trying to say. I'm trying to earn us money here, Brandy. I was wondering about Don't you don't know if you've noticed, but we've not been sponsored yet. Can't imagine why. I can't imagine why so, we're throwing things around like homo lingo. <laughs> I covered a case of body shaming, which I don't know if anyone's going to even remember this, but you and I both remembered it was a time a couple years ago when a former Playboy model body shamed this woman in the gym, took a freaking picture of this 70-year-old woman Mm -hmm. in the gym, and then posted it to Snapchat for all to see, making fun. So that was a fascinating case. And Brandy, what exactly did you cover Covered a disappearance of a seventeen-year-old girl. Brandy always bringing the laughs as usual. <laughs> for you, the case was crazy though because yes. the perpetrator was a giant asshole who thought he was a teenage boy. No, no, Brandy. It was all her idea. Yeah, I. You know, guys, it's like Brandy didn't even listen to the murderer's <laughs> side of the story. <laughs> anyway, if you sign up for the Patreon today, you get that bonus episode plus our previous bonus episode right away. Yeah. You get to just listen to all kinds of things and, you know, join the Discord, have some fun. Get, if you join at the Supreme Court level, you get a sticker and a thank you note. One of my clients asked if he joins the Patreon if I will give him a... Uh, 
discount on his haircut. What? <laughs> so yes, your sticker should you join <laughs> should you join the Patreon, please uh, present your sticker at my salon for ten uh, percent off any surface. Brandy, I think you're ripping yourself <laughs> off there. I'm not giving anyone ten percent off of anything over here. <laughs> Anyway, let's talk about some kidnapping. Oh, great. Um, as kidnappings go, this is um, a little on the lighthearted side, so that's well, good. Well, good, because that one case you did with Marion, what's her name? Oh, yeah. Well, the eyeballs. Yes, I, yeah, that was that horrible. Was but it was old-timey, which somehow lessens. It does somehow. I, I, don't, know I don't know why. why it it still happened, but. Okay. So I've stumbled across this case, and like, was like, ooh, that's super interesting. But I could only find like bits and pieces here and there because it's very old timey. We're talking 1900. Oh, so you know how difficult it is to find stuff. I do. On you love the old timeies. I do. So. Okay, no, I'm ready, sir. Okay, so I had stumbled across this case and I was trying, you know, piece it together from little articles and stuff. Right. And I just was having trouble finding enough to make an episode about it. And then, wouldn't you know, my buddy. David Krajicek <laughs> has a fucking amazing article about this case. I feel like you really need to reach I out to him. I need to reach out to David Krajicek in real life. And at least send him a sticker. Something. Or say, hey, come in for a haircut. I'll give you 15% Whoa. Off. So <laughs> that just made me think of the thing your dad always does. Oh, God. What? Where he's like, so, uh. Oh. How much of that haircut do you get to keep? How much of it goes in your pocket? Say someone comes in, pays 20 bucks for a haircut. How much of that do you keep it? Oh, my God. <laughs> you guys. And so I, of course, your mom, Sheree Ray was horrified. Yes, when he as asked anyone that. should be. The look on her face was horrible. And I was like, Daryl, you're asking me how much money I make right now. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the craziest part. He literally thinks that no, he is not. Yes, he, he really thinks, didn't. He thinks he has found a way yeah. to dance around <laughs> yes. that topic because he's probably been told a million times by my mom, yeah. you can't just ask people how, how much, much they, they make, make, what is the square footage of their home, um, yeah. tell me exactly what you've got in the bank. So that was his, <laughs> that was his was clever like, way. Was, I was like, Daryl, are you asking me how much money? No, no. I'm simply asking, you know, somebody gives you that $20 bill for their haircut, how much of it are you keeping? <laughs> God. Anyway, back to the kidnapping. <laughs> so, Did you just need to remind me of my father? I just loved it. <laughs> I just love that. Do you just love to see the looks on my face and my mom's yes. face? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, shout out to my boy, David Krajicek. Um, I'm going to hunt him down. Ooh, that oh. sounds bad. I'm going to track him down and reach out to him. I think it's only fair at this point because he and I are basically best friends. <laughs> <laughs> and he doesn't know it. Okay. It was December 18th, 1900. Eddie Cudahy had stepped out of his family's mansion in Omaha, Nebraska. They live in this area of Omaha that's very upscale, very well-to-do. And it was after dark, and he was just running out for a second to go to a neighbor's house to run a quick errand. He brought his dog with him, a collie, and he went three doors down um, to the home of Dr. Fred Rustin. He went inside and handed over a bundle of books and magazines that the Cudahy family had borrowed. He 
leaves to go home. Eddie is a 16-year-old boy from this well-to-do family. He's not far from home. He doesn't really think much about his surroundings as he leaves the neighbor's house to head home for the evening. So he didn't notice that kind of lurking behind him on the street was this kind of like ramshackle uh, horse and buggy. Okay. Was kind of slowly following behind him as he was working towards home. And that two men were sitting in that horse and buggy and they were watching Eddie very closely through a spyglass. A spyglass? A spyglass. Like binoculars? Oh, no. Like like a... You know what? I've only seen those in cartoons Uh and they've only been used on ships. Oh, yeah. It is. That's basically what it is. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Like, you know, kind of... Yeah, you collapse it down. You can telescope it out. Daffy Duck pulls that out. And then he's got a black circle under his eye. Yeah, it always (laughs) happens. Yes. Okay, I'm with you. (laughs) So these two men are watching Eddie as he's... Um, as he, they've been watching him the whole time from the time he left his house while he was in the neighbor's house. Now that he's out of the house, they're just waiting for the right moment. Mm -hmm. And finally they feel like the moment has arrived. They pull the buggy pulls up next to him and the driver, a man in his thirties jumped out and he stopped Eddie. And he said, we've got you, Eddie McGee. And Eddie's like, (laughs) what? I'm, I'm not Eddie McGee. I'm, I'm. Eddie Cudahy. Mm-hmm. And the man stops him and he says, I am the sheriff of Sarpy County and I arrest you. You stole $500 from your aunt and you've just escaped from reform school. I'm taking you in. And Eddie is so confused and he's protesting sure. and he's like, he points towards his family's mansion, which is this beautiful, like, 22-room mansion. Tell me. Oh, um, my God. I don't have st- an address. Oh. It doesn't exist anymore. But if you look up, just Google Cudahy Mansion. and it Okay, spell Cudahy again. C-U-D-A-H-Y. Okay. Cudahy Mansion, Omaha. Ooh. It's beautiful. Okay, okay. Ooh. Look at that. Yeah, are you seeing, like, all the peaks? Yes. Yes. Well, and it's interesting to me to see, I don't know, it's, it's cool to me to see these old-timey places with mm-hmm. kind of young trees, because you oh, just yeah. never think of a place that grand having young trees yes. around. It just shows how new the place yeah. is. Yeah. Wow. So he's like, Eddie's super confused. He points to his house, and he's like, I'm not Eddie McGee. I, I live here. I'm Eddie Cudahy. Um, this, this is where my family is. Like, that's my house. And the man is like, that game's not going to work on me, young man. I know who you are. Mm. And he said, um, I know who you are, but if you'd like to prove to me that I've misidentified you. Get in my go, creepy. No, go right ahead. Otherwise, I'm taking you under arrest. And so Eddie is 16. Yeah. Doesn't really know how to prove that he's who he says he is. And so he gets in the buggy with this man. Oh, my gosh. And so he gets in the buggy and he notices as he does that the second man who was sit, who has been sitting in the buggy the whole time throws something out like a large stick into the yard just as they're driving off. And like they he throws something out into the Cudahy yard and then he like whips the horses into a trot and they take off. Suddenly... It like clicks 
in Eddie's mind what's going on. Mm-hmm. He's just been kidnapped. Yep. And they threw a stick with, with a, a ransom, ransom note attached Ugh. into the yard. Yes. yes. So he's set. He this like clicks in his brain, and he's like, "Oh shit! I know what you fellows want. You want some of my dad's money." That's what he says to these yeah. two kidnappers. So, back at the Cudahy mansion, Eddie's dog shows back up at home. And the servants are like, well, that's super weird. Where's uh-huh. Eddie? Uh-huh. He must have gotten tied up at the neighbor's house. No big deal. They don't really think much of it. There's no, they let the dog in. Like yeah. They go about their business. It wasn't until Eddie's dad, um, Edward Sr., returned home from like a dinner party at 1030 that he realized something was amiss. Eddie still yeah. hadn't come home. Where was he? And so Edward Sr. called the police and two police officers on bicycles, which it's 1900. So they're like those, you know, the one with the giant wheel and then like the tiny wheel and back, right? No. What's a 1900 bicycle look like? I mean, I guess you're right. But it's it's amazing to me that they, I mean, how long did it take them to figure out, hey, we can make two wheels the same size? Yeah. I get, well, I don't know. Look, when you Google it, there's there's both kinds. There's the big wheeled and the and the two wheeled. Well, I don't know what to believe. I don't either. <laughs> when did they, what, hold on? Let's pause while I read about the history of a bicycle. Yeah. <laughs> Real quick. I don't know. I'm just picturing two police officers on a bicycle with one giant wheel and one tiny wheel on the back. Uh-huh. You know, just pulling up to the Cudahy Mansion. If you want to picture it otherwise, you go right ahead, Kristen. Question my knowledge of 1900s bicycles. <laughs> <laughs> they, so two police officers come over and they, you know, make a little report and they're like, mm-hmm. well, huh, it's about, it's 1900. This is about all we can yeah. do. <laughs> and so they, the family sits and waits and they hear nothing. Eddie doesn't show up. It's, they wait all through the night without a word. And then like the dawn edition of the, Omaha newspapers the next day come out like with a special edition, an extra, they call it an extra, extra edition. Extra, extra, yes. yeah. Um, about the disappearance of Eddie Cudahy. The Cudahys were like pillars of the city. Edward Cudahy Sr. and his brothers were iconic American success stories, which is interesting because I've never fucking heard of them. No. <laughs> but, um, Edward Sr. was born in Milwaukee in 1860. Um, He was the youngest of five sons. They were Irish immigrants who had settled in Milwaukee. And I'm sorry, I just burped. Great. I love it. Yeah. We we did just have a delicious lunch. It was amazing. Oh, that place was so cool. Norman forced us out of our comfort zone. Yeah. We went to this cool new place yes. that was so oh, fancy and We sat on this beautiful, like, blue leather Chesterfield. Like, oh, Ugh. it was gorgeous. Yes. And delicious food. And I had a Caesar salad. You had Amish chicken, which just looked like chicken. I don't know why it's called Amish chicken. Well, you just had a Caesar salad, which looked like a Caesar salad. Yeah, so but they just... didn't call it an Amish Caesar salad. <laughs> they called it a Pentecostal <laughs> Caesar salad. <laughs> anyway, so... I just have to read you exactly what this says from this article by my boy, David. Okay. Some people are born to certain professions, lawyers, doctors, teachers, or laborers. The Cudahy boys were born to be meatpackers. (laughs) (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) What 
McConaughey boys were meat packers from the day they were born, and they wanted to start a slaughterhouse dynasty. They were determined to be the standard oil of beef. Okay. And so at 13, Edward went to work for a packaging company, Plankington Packaging Company, which was like the largest meat packing firm in Milwaukee. And his older brothers already worked there. They were all kind of trying to learn the trade. And each brother learned like a different aspect of the meat packing industry. And when... The end, like so, at this time was kind of the industrial revolution when things were changing. Railroads became a big thing, and suddenly that meant that the um, food industry really changed because it allowed for the shipment of perishables, which is something that really hadn't happened before. Yeah, and so the the Cudahy's figured out like they were. They were smart guys. They just yeah. they figured out that it would be more economical to set up a meat packing facility near a farm so they could get the animals in very quickly and then send it out. Right. And so they started up. They had this idea to start up their own company. And so they moved in like in the 1880s to Omaha. At this time Omaha had kind of become like this like had this like thriving livestock business and so the Cudahy's came in and started their own meat packing firm in Omaha and they were able to um, package meat and distribute meat like up to like a 250 mile radius so they went all the way from Kansas to Iowa to Missouri to Minnesota to South Dakota um, and they would either you know they people they would process people's animals for them or they would purchase livestock and process it and send it out. Anyway, so this kind of became, Omaha kind of became a hub for meat packing. Yeah. Um there were five big companies there and the Cudahy um brand was one of the biggest. I I I've only heard of one of these meat packing companies which were said to be like And you're the, a meat packing expert. I, so am I don't a understand. So these are the five. So there's Cudahy Wilson, Swift, Moral, and Armor. Armor's the only one I've heard of. I've never heard of any of them. You've never heard of like Armor Meats, Armor Hot Dogs? No. I have. I've heard of Nathan's Hot Dogs. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like 1887 by this point. Things are going well. The big five meat packers worked pretty well together. They actually worked. Okay. They actually kind of phased out smaller, you know. Oh, mon- good. A yeah, monopoly. Exactly. I they, love that. Exactly. They took, they, it became yeah. a mo- monopoly on the meat processing and meat packing industry. And all of the owners of the five big meat packing companies became millionaires many times over. Eddie or Edward, sorry, Edward Sr. was one of those. Mm-hmm. And he did not conceal his wealth. He was not shy about it. He loved that. He had worked his way up. He had earned it. Yeah. And so he built that giant mansion um, that sat on a hill above downtown Omaha. And everybody knew that that was the Cudahy home. It was no secret who lived there. It was no secret who he was, he was very well known. And not everybody who knew that has good intentions, including Uh these two men who had just picked up Eddie and 
kidnapped him and asked for ransom. You're saying these kidnappers did not have good intentions? That's exactly what I'm saying. My goodness, Brandy. Kristen. Thank you. (laughs) So it's the next morning. The news of the kidnapping is out in the paper. Um, Everybody hears about it. Edward closes the Cudahy plant for the day. And he has like, there's like 2,000 employees at his plant. So this is, okay. that's a big plant. Yes. And he asks all of his employees to join in the search for his son. Wow. And out of respect for their competitor, the other meatpacking plants did the same thing. They all closed for the day and sent all of their employees out into the streets looking for Eddie Cudahy. I... I'm shocked. Right? Okay, so I these are the moments when I hate to have a podcast because yeah. my jaw drops. Yes. I mean, I've got goosebumps. Yes. That, that is amazing. Yes. That so is so beautiful. Yes. So 7,000 men and women <laughs> are out just trampling through the streets of Omaha looking everywhere for Eddie Cudahy. And there's just no sign of him. Oh. So, here's the thing. Not everybody is a fan of the Cudahy's. Sure. And lots of people see that the big five, the meatpacking companies, just as you saw them, as a monopoly, Mm -hmm. who have put smaller companies out of work. And so, to a lot of people, there wasn't a lot of sympathy about what was going on. With the Cudahy's. Hmm. So the Omaha World Herald put out this little blurb about the crime. And I think that this kind of speaks a little bit to that mindset. So this is what it said. Edward Cudahy Jr. is a young man with a pale and rather delicate face. While tall, his physique is by no means a strong one. He has the reputation of being very much a boy. He smokes a little, reads dime novels occasionally, and is fond of gaiety. He has always been liberally supplied with money and has not hesitated to contract debts that would open the eyes of the average poor boy wide as saucers. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Hey, everybody. A little shithead's been kidnapped. That's exactly right. He's pale because he doesn't have to go outside and do actual actual labor. Yes. And he's spoiled as can be. Mm -hmm. Good grief. Yeah. I can't believe they printed that. I know, right? It's going to get real interesting later. Okay, okay. So, nine a, it's 9 a.m. They still have not heard a word. Nobody. Ha- there's been no sightings of mm-hmm. Eddie, nothing. And the Cudahy's receive a phone call. And it's a man. And Wait, he you says, haven't read the ransom note to me yet. Are you going to read it? Hmm. Have the Cudahy's found the ransom note yet, Kristen? Really? They had 7,000 workers going all over the place. No one... Well, they're not searching their own fucking house. Well, but they didn't, like, scout the perimeter? Can you let me tell you what this phone call is? Okay, fine. It's 9 a.m. They receive a phone call, and there's a man on the line, and he says, Have you looked in the front yard for a letter? (laughs) (laughs) It was me. It was a relative of mine. (laughs) I was like, hello? And... uh, Mr. Cudahy, who answered the phone, is like, no. And the man on the line says, do so at once and you will find one. And so 
Mr. Cudahy sends one of his workers into the yard, one of his like, you know, they call him his coachman. So like that's like his valet or whatever. Sends him into the yard and he comes back with a big stick with a note attached to it. The note had been written in pencil on kind of like brown, like parcel wrapping. So like that brown, like craft paper. Right. Um, And it said... Okay, are you going to give me all this attitude just because I interrupted you? Yes, as I was about to tell you what the fucking ransom note Brandy, said. Brandy, okay, I need the audience to weigh in. How often do you interrupt me in a all story? All the time. Yes. <laughs> mm, 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 mm. Constantly. Yes. I never don't interrupt you. <laughs> this is what the ransom note said, Kristen. Are you ready? Are you ready? Dang it, I was going to wait for you to start talking and then interrupt you, but you stopped too long. Mr. Cudahy. (laughs) We have kidnapped your child and demand $25,000. Ooh, that seems kind of steep in 1900. Adjusted for inflation. Yes. $762,000. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So... And demand $25,000 for his safe return. If you give us the money, he will return as safe as when you last saw him. But if you refuse, we will put acid in his eyes and blind him. Good grief. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Get the money all in gold, five, ten, and twenty dollar pieces. Get in your buggy alone on the night of December 19th at 7 o'clock p.m. Follow the paved road toward Fremont. When you come to a lantern by the side of the road, place the money by the lantern and immediately turn your horse around and return home. Mr. Cudahy turns this note over to the police immediately and um, the chief of detectives, Henry Savage, um, is able to trace the call somehow. I have no idea how. And that it's seems 1900, made up. But well, is it like five people have that's phones? That's probably right. That's probably right. Yeah. Not very many people have phones. Yeah. And so they figure out that the call to the Cudahy home had been placed at this stable in town. Okay. And so they, the police rush there, but the caller is already gone. Um, the people who worked there were able to give kind of a description of the man, but said that he had he had rented a pony and ridden off. Wow. Okay. Immediately after getting off the phone. Yes. So the police chief, um, John Donahue, told the Cudahy's, you can absolutely not pay this ransom. And they're like, what about the acid? Well, so they're like, no, 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 we have to pay the ransom because there's a whole section in the note that talks about this. So in the ransom note, the kidnapper referred to what was at this time the most famous kidnapping case in American history, which I've never heard of. Then you have to cover it next week. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) So it's the kidnapping of Charlie Ross, who was four years old and kidnapped from Philadelphia in July of 1874. Whoever kidnapped him was a man who had used candy to get the boy into his buggy. And then the boy's father had put, who was like, you know, a sure someone wealthy, wealthy store owner right. um, had put in a newspaper ad um, offering a $300 reward for the return of his son. Right. Um, after that, he had received a letter, which led to like a string of like 23 letters, like mm. from this person who had kidnapped him. In the end, the person demanded $20,000 in exchange for the safe return of Charlie. The police told, 
Mr. Ross not to pay the ransom and not to continue communicating with the with the kidnapper. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, as I mentioned, dragged on for months. He communicated by placing ads. The kidnapper would then send a letter back. Ultimately, he decided he was going to go against the police's advice and he paid the ransom. And he never saw he never saw his son again. Oh. He was never found. And in this note, it said. Mr. Ross regretted for the rest of his life that he took the advice of the police. Ross died of a broken heart, sorry that he had allowed the detectives to dictate to him. Mr. Cudahy, you are up against it, and there is only one way out. Give up the coin. Money we want, and money we will get. If you don't give it up, you can lead your boy blind the rest of your days. Oh. Yeah. And so Mr. Cudahy's like, fuck, I'm giving them the money. Sure, sure. Yeah. I'm not going to mess around. I'm giving you the money. So he calls Omaha National Bank and he made arrangements to get the money put together and to send one of his employees to pick up the gold coins that afternoon. So the bank's putting together the money and it's like a a hundred pounds worth of gold coins. Uh And so they can't find a bag that it will that will hold it and so they have to send somebody to the store to buy a suitcase to that it'll all sit in and so they charged um, mr cutty 12 dollars for the suitcase no. to hold the ransom uh-huh so as instructed that night edward cutty got in his carriage at 7 p.m and started off on the road just as i said he took along um his head cattle buyer patty mcgrath and told the police they were not welcome. So they went headed down this road that they were instructed to in the ransom note. They went one mile, then two miles, then three miles, and stopped several times thinking they must have missed where the lantern was um, and that they'd passed it. But they continued for another, it was ultimately like seven miles down this road before Mm -hmm. they got to the lantern. They pulled over beside the lantern. Um, Patty McGrath jumped out and checked for, like, there was, the note said that there would be, like, some ribbon or something signifying that this okay. is where they were supposed to. Yeah. So he got out. He found the ribbon. They left the $25,000 suit, like, in the suitcase beside the lantern. And Edward Cudahy left a note on top of the suitcase. And on the note, in the note, he said that he had complied with their request and demands to the very letter, and he expected them to keep their part of the bargain. And then, just as they had been instructed to do, they got back into their buggy, they turned it around, and they headed back home. It was like 9.30 p.m. when they arrived back at the Cudahy home, and Edward Cudahy and Patty McGrath sat and waited. And then, at 1 a.m., The kitchen door opened. Someone walked into the house. It was Eddie Cudahy Jr. You are kidding me. He was safe and sound, just as promised. What was the story? So, we'll get there. Okay. (laughs) So... The news that Eddie Cudahy had been returned and That's was unbelievable. Unbelievable. And that he was completely unharmed was amazing. But people were pissed. Why? At Edward Cudahy 
for paying the ransom. Yeah. Okay, okay. again, I know I sound like a four-year-old, but why? So he became like this picture of this wealthy man who would just bend to whatever the criminals wanted and that would encourage others to follow suit and start kidnapping the children of people for ransom. Okay, well, I understand that. And that's correct. I mean, that's probably why police don't want you to comply Mm -hmm. with with people like that. But at the same time, put yourself in that guy's shoes. Uh, Yeah, you're going to pay the fucking ransom. It's your child. You've got the money. Yes. Of course course you're going to pay. pay. Of course you're going to pay. In that moment, are you going to be like, well, this is kind of a slippery slope here. And I'm not going to fork over the money. Hmm, I have $25,000 in my bank account. Hmm, I'm missing my son. Yes. Yeah. So the San Francisco examiner, which think about this. This happened in Omaha. Yeah. So San Francisco, very far away. Just like three miles away. Uh, Like Omaha's in the middle of the United States. San Francisco, clear over on the West Coast. We're talking about 1900. The news traveled there very fast. And they put out this editorial and they said, this is a direct quote from the San Francisco examiner. Mr. Cudahy has acted as a bad citizen because it will encourage others. I guess they hadn't heard of victim blaming back then. I guess they were busy inventing it for this case. That is insane to say. Yeah. And the Omaha Bee, another newspaper in Omaha, they criticized Mr. Cudahy because he spoke in a nonchalant tone about paying the $25,000. They said it was as if he had just dropped a nickel down a cellar grating. Okay. Here's what drives me crazy about that. If he had done the opposite, if he had said, oh, oh my gosh, uh, you know, I hate to pay, then... Someone would have criticized him and they would have said, that's your child. How can you even think about money at a time like this? Good grief, people. Yep. Everybody shut up. Yeah. Retroactively. Yes. Retroactively. (laughs) All you people from 1900, you shut up. (laughs) So. Haters in the building, Brandy. Oh, yeah. Tell me about haters, Kristen. I know. (laughs) (laughs) And this time, um, Eddie's back. He's fine, but people are like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you paid that money for that ransom. Now people are just going to be kidnapping kids left and right. How dare you? Which, you're exactly right. People would have said the complete opposite thing had he not paid the ransom. And for the record, they're right. They're no, right. they are right. Yeah, when, they are right. When you pay off somebody, it, yes. it sends a signal to everyone else, hey, here's a way to make money. But you don't get mad at, no. at the victim of the crime. No. Good grief. So... Eddie's back, but they still don't know who did this. They've caught no one. And so Edward Sr. puts out a $25,000 reward for the arrest of whoever did Mm -hmm. this. Um, And then he also hires the Pinkerton Detective Agency to investigate the case because he has no faith in the police at this point. Sure. Well, and Um, they're pissed at him. Exactly. And so the... Pinkerton Detective Agency is $1,000 a week to Holy have them shit. Yes, investigate this. So, I mean, that's a crazy amount of money. We're talking... Beep, boop, beep, boop, beep, boop. Like $30,000 a week he's paying no. to have them investigate the kidnapping of his son. Of his son. Because he just... 
there had been some things that had happened at this point where he just did not believe that the Omaha police could solve this. Um, there was believed to be some corruption involved in it and also just plain incompetence. So the people who the police officers who had investigated the scene where the ransom drop was, they didn't find any evidence at all. But a couple days later, two boys were like playing in that area and they were poking around with a stick in the weeds and they found the lantern that had been used to mark the spot. Oh, come on. Yeah. Yeah. No, you can't trust the police. (laughs) (laughs) The Pinkerton detective agency sits down um, Eddie Cudahy and they want to know everything that he could tell them about the crime. So he says that when he was taken, the kidnappers had blindfolded him and then had driven him around in circles for like an hour before they finally let him get out of the buggy. And then they helped him climb up a set of rickety stairs. He said that as he was like from the time that he got out of the buggy to the time he entered whatever building he was held in, that he caught like through some whiffs of the the packing district. And so he knew where he was. He knew he was in South Omaha. He could tell by the smell. He was near the, the meat packing district. I bet that smelled terrible. I bet it smelled terrible. Yes. And so he, he knew that he was in South Omaha. He said that he was held with his legs chained, but his hands were free. Um, He was in an empty room with the exception of like one single chair and a gasoline stove. And through his blindfold, he could see that the windows were all covered in newspaper. He said that they had treated him pretty well. They'd fed him crackers and coffee and given him cigarettes. And that there were two kidnappers. What are you laughing at? I'm sorry. I'm just thinking of a 16-year-old. What should we give him? Coffee Coffee and cigarettes? Yes. (laughs) A different time. Uh, Definitely a different time. He said um, one kidnapper spoke with a very deep voice and had reeked of booze. um, And that the second kidnapper had disappeared for a very long time. Most likely when he was retrieving the ransom. Sure. When the second kidnapper had returned, Eddie was again um, led blindfolded down the stairs um, and to the buggy and driven around for an hour before being released about a mile from his home. And he walked home. Yeah. So this information was given to the police and to the Pinkerton detective agency. And the details of it were leaked to the press almost immediately. Okay. Yes. Um, and so every crime reporter in Omaha was trying to find that spot where he had been taken. And they found it before the police did. Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, the police were pissed. Well, how hard were they working? I wonder. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, but they they looked terrible because yeah. these crime reporters found it. So I have an address, and I looked it up, and there is a house there, but I don't think that it's the... I'll be the judge of that. Give it to me. Um, 3604 Grover Street, Omaha, Nebraska. So in in the articles about that, it, it says that it was little more than a shack, um, and there's like an actual house there now, so I doubt it's the same house, but... Hmm, it's showing me 3606. You said 3604? You have to like kind of look behind. Yeah, you got to look between so many trees. So many trees. Maybe they grew those trees. Maybe they did. Creepers. That's right. Keep creepers like us off the internet looking for it. I know you want me to stop, but I can't stop. Won't stop. (laughs) Get it. Get it. Why can't you look this up on like a real estate site? Huh? I think there's not really a real house there. 
Yes, there is. I mean, there is. You can see a house, but it's not. I don't know. Well, then what the fudge am I looking at here, Brandy? Okay, you know what? New tactic. Hang on. <laughs> New tactic. What are you doing now? New tactic. Who does? Mm. Okay. 3606 was built in 1920. Okay. So, yeah. So, I bet the shack was torn down and a new house was built in its place in the 20s. Perhaps. Perhaps. We'll only know if we drive up there. <laughs> it's not a far drive. It's really rating. not. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, the reporters track this location down. They find it. They learn that the house was owned by this guy who had rented it to a man who used the name James L. Connor, and he had rented it for a month, and he paid $6. I'm sorry. That's just (laughs) amazing. Okay. So the police, as I mentioned, are super embarrassed, super pissed about this. They threaten to arrest all of the reporters who are at the the place. Um, I didn't know Donald Trump was alive back then. Right, (laughs) exactly. So, but Eddie and Edward rush to the place where all of the reporters are talking about. And Eddie is says, there's no question about it. I am sure that this is the place. Wow. Okay. So three days after the kidnapping, the police are scooped again. (laughs) This time (gasps) by the World, the Omaha World Herald, when it reported that police were eyeing a possible suspect. This guy, Pat Crow, who was a known criminal. He had a record from Chicago all the way to the Ozarks. Very well known. Um, and the cops had apparently gotten a tip from like a like a crime buddy of Pat Crow's uh-huh. um, that he said that Crow was bragging about how he had kidnapped a kid and how it had worked exactly how he wanted to. And he was like, this get rich quick scheme is perfect. Wow. Yeah. And so now they have an actual suspect and everybody knows the suspect, which is great. You know, (laughs) Um, the police go and show sketches of Pat Crow to a bunch of witnesses to the crime. So while there's not any direct witnesses to the kidnapping, there's the people who were at the, working at the stable when the call about the ransom note was made. Um, there's neighbors at the rented house that had seen men coming and going from there. And each of them said, yes, for sure. Pat Crow is the man that I saw. Um, and he was not an easy person to forget. He was very well dressed and very put together for the criminal that he was. Mm -hmm. He, this is exactly how he's described. You know, my boy, David loves to describe people. He loves a good description. Let's hear it. This is his description. His personal carriage dress and style set him apart from the hunched, rumpled and beleaguered masses trudging about Omaha. Mm. Crow was a physical specimen. He carried himself with erect posture He was handsome, with a square jaw and fine features, except for a bent nose from a well-aimed punch or two. His dark eyes flashed and gleamed like that of a romantic criminal type. He wore fine clothes and favored well-trimmed but stylishly long hair. Who's that lady? (laughs) 
So this is what we know about Crow. He was born in 1869 in Vail, Iowa, um, which is about 60 miles northeast of Omaha. Um, He moved to Omaha at 16. He married um, Harriet Murphy when he was 18. They had three children who died in infancy. Oh, God. The 1900s. I'm telling you. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And uh, would you imagine that? They didn't make it through that. They drifted apart. Yeah, Uh, that'll do it. Yeah, imagine the strain that puts Uh on a relationship. Uh Yes. Around that time... Crow decided that he was going to open a butcher shop in Omaha. Okay, here we go. But the business went under. Hmm. I wonder if he when he was driven, anyone when he that. was driven uh-huh. out of business by someone undercutting his prices. Would you believe if that person was Edward Cudahy Senior? Shocking. Mm-hmm. But. Pat Crow swallowed his pride, and he went to work at one of the Cudahy meat shops. <laughs> meat shops? Yeah. <laughs> meat markets? You mean butchers? Butchers, I guess. It says shop, but sure. Well, I trust David. I don't trust me. <laughs> I don't trust me either. <laughs> um, but he was fired after it was believed that he was stealing from the register. Mm. Felt a little entitled, did he? And it was reported that at, when he was fired, Pat Crow left that job muttering under his breath, I'll make you pay for this someday. Ooh. Ooh. Pat. Yes. Um, so, down on his luck. He's got no job. He decides he's going to go to Chicago, and he's going to open. He's going to go to Chicago where, like, he can get some cheap butcher equipment and he's going to open his own butcher shop in Davenport, Iowa. Okay. So he's got $750 to his name. He's got all of that in his pocket and he boards a train for Chicago. He stops over at a whorehouse (laughs) in Chicago, decides to have some fun. It's called Sweet Annie's. (laughs) Excellent. And uh, he has a raucous night of fun. Sure. And then would you believe it if he woke up the next morning no with a money? hangover and no money? <laughs> <laughs> so um, That's not very sweet. No. So he retaliated by uh, robbing the place the next day. He made off with $7,000 in oh. cash and jewels. Oh, my God. This is a guy you do not want to make angry. Yep, exactly. Um, but he was quickly arrested. Um, oh, okay. Yes. He shot and wounded a Chicago policeman during his arrest. Um, he was charged, tried, convicted, and sentenced to six years in Joliet six State years? Prison. Yes. The guy, the police officer didn't die. Oh, okay. I mean, but still, I feel like... You think that's low? Seven, I mean, yeah, I mean, probably. Seems pretty low. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I mean, in that time, they were probably hanging people for left and right for nothing, so... Well, right. Huh. Yeah. Okay, okay. That's probably true. So, he's sentenced to... To six years in prison. But he writes this letter, some sob story, to John Thurston, who's a senator from Omaha. Oh, my God. And he swears that he's a reformed man. He'll never break a law again. Blah, 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 blah. And somehow it makes an impact on this John Thurston. And he called the governor of Illinois, who was Joseph Pfeiffer at the time, and asks him to show mercy on poor Pat Crow, and he does. He pardons him after serving only 17 months. 
What? Yes. This is insane. Insane. Yeah. So. I cannot believe this. Oh, he's fully reformed, Kristen. Oh, yeah. Only except he wasn't. He wasn't <laughs> reformed at all. He gets out of prison and immediately commits several stick-ups in Denver, Kansas City, Philadelphia, and then finally was arrested for a train robbery in Missouri. <laughs> he was convicted of that and spent three years in state prison. Wow. Only yeah. three years. Only three years. This guy must have been charming as hell. Yeah. So he's so charming that the press starts to paint him as this kind of folk legend. Oh, my God. This is how the Omaha Examiner, which can we talk about? Omaha is not that big of a town. How many fucking papers did they have? It was 1900. Brandy. I know. It, was the, it wasn't know, 2008. It was not. Yeah. <laughs> so the Omaha, the Omaha Daily News mm-hmm. wrote this of Crow. They said he was one of the few really spectacular and truly named desperados of the day. What? They said he committed his deeds with a dash and abandon and dared deviltry that marked the deeds of the picturesque old scoundrels of the days before civilization laid them on the shelf. What the fuck? Yeah. Hey, that 16-year-old kid who got kidnapped is an asshole. Yes! But this guy... This guy is a, a Desperado. Legend. That's right. That's exactly right. Oh, my God. This is so weird. Yes. So... These stories are coming out about how this he's an international man of mystery, basically. (laughs) He's the Austin Powers of 1900. And um, but no one can find him. He's disappeared off the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. The Pinkerton detectives can't find him. The police can't find him. Not even the press who've been able to track down everything in this story. They can't find him. By January of 1901, crow sightings were reported far and wide. People said that he was in Central America. He was on Nantucket Island. He was in South Africa. But most likely none of this was true. Uh It's believed that he never left the Omaha area, that he was just hiding out. Really? Yes. Okay, now that surprises me more than anything. Yeah. With all these people looking for him. Yeah. Unless he charmed a bunch of them and they were just like, no, I have no idea where he could be. So one of the newspapers put this when nobody could track him down. They Uh wrote, it's fairly well established who kidnapped Eddie Cudahy. But what we would like to know is who kidnapped Pat Crow? God. (laughs) Another one said, Uh. don't be too hard on the police. Occasionally, some of them catch someone. (gasps) The shade. The shade. (laughs) Police were knocking on the door of everyone who had ever known Pat Crow. Mm -hmm. His ex-wife or estranged wife. I think they were still married. His brother. All of his criminal cohorts. No one knew anything. Right. The police chief ordered up wanted posters um, by the thousands, and they were shipped across America. And this led to lots more reports of sightings, but still. Nothing. No crow. By this time, like, 
couple more months had gone by. It's like the spring of 1901, and Omaha has gained this national notoriety of, <laughs> that they don't want. Well, yeah. Yeah. And so the city council is like, we're going to put up $25,000 to match Mr. Cudahy's reward so that we've got a $50,000 reward. Surely that'll be enough to draw something out. Someone will come forward. Right. But nothing. With $50,000 on the line. Yeah. And then somehow it got leaked that the police chief had asked a hypnotist to come in. Oh, and like, come on. <laughs> come on, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Help him find Crow. And so, like, just... It wasn't going well. No it was kidding. not going well. When you bring in the hypnotist, all. it's a sign yes. that things aren't great. So they know who took Eddie. They just can't find him. Mm-hmm. But Nebraska politicians wanted to be ready when they did find him so that they could serve the justice. So they start looking into the state law and they're like, what are we going to charge him with? And what they found shocked me. Okay. Neither of the abduction statutes in Nebraska at this time could apply to the Cudahy case. What? One law required transportation of an abduction victim across state lines, (gasps) which didn't happen. The second defined kidnapping as the abduction of a child under the age of 10. Oh, my Lord. Technically, Pat Crow hadn't broken the law. You are kidding me. It's not against the law to kidnap a (laughs) 16-year-old kid in Nebraska in 1900. Great. Yes. Well, okay, where was the moral outrage about that, right? So the legislators were like, holy shit, we have to change that. Yeah. And so they quickly passed like several new kidnapping laws, including one that provided that said if the kidnapping involved extortion of money so if they asked for ransom they would the kidnapper would receive life in prison nice yes. okay there you go and then that same law also listed out that capital punishment could be involved if the kidnappers harmed the victim in any okay. way and then they presented another law that extended the definition of kidnapping to anyone under the age of 18 Okay, so, um, but none of these laws are are not retroactive. retroactive. Yeah, yeah. At that same time, Kansas, Illinois, Missouri, and a few other states passed those same laws. Yeah. Wow, unbelievable. So a ton of states. So I mean, think about this though. Like the big kidnapping that led to harsh punishment for for the the crime was the Lindbergh, and this is twenty five years before that. Yeah. Mm. More than that. What year did that happen? I thought that was like the 20s, right? I thought it was like 1925 was my guess. Yeah, I I, no, mine too. Okay. <laughs> so they're passing laws, but they're like, holy shit, there's a big problem here. Big old loophole in our legal system. Gotta yes. sew that puppy up. Too bad for Eddie Cudahy. Not really going to be any justice for him. Well, you know, but... he was pale and yes, rich. <laughs> and rich, so it doesn't matter. Finally, a break in the case comes. It's March of 1901. But hold on, hold on, hold on. Why are they even trying to find this guy if what he did is not illegal? What are they going to do to him when they find him? I think that they thought that they could charge him with robbery 
for the $25,000. Okay. Eventually, that's what they're going to do. Okay, okay. So a break comes in March. This guy, James Callahan, who's kind of a a well-known criminal, he was arrested for public drunkenness. Uh He served a night in jail. And then when he got out, he paid his fine. With a brand new shiny $20 gold piece. Love it. And they're like, oh, huh. Looks very familiar. Mm. Looks like the cut of he ran some money. And so they kind of follow him and he makes eight stops and he pays with eight gold pieces like of course he, he does he, you know goes from one tavern to the next yes. paying with a nice shiny gold piece at each place so they arrest him on march 21st 1901 saying that he had with a warrant that said he unlawfully feloniously and forcibly robbed edward cudahy of twenty five thousand mm-hmm. dollars so his trial, you know, it's 1901 at this point. So trials happen very quickly in this day. Yeah. So he went on trial on April 23rd and it seemed like a pretty easy case. Edward Cudahy, or I'm sorry, Eddie Cudahy took the stand and identified Callahan as the kidnapper with the deep voice. He had never seen him, but he'd heard his voice. He was sure that it was him. Edward Sr. also took the stand and talked about how he had played, paid the ransom. A neighbor of the place where they had taken Eddie testified that she recognized Callahan as one of the men that she had seen coming and going from that house in the days before and after the kidnapping. But the defense called several alibi witnesses Two said that they had seen him playing cards at a saloon on center street, which was not near the kidnapping Mm -hmm. hideout on the night of the kidnapping. Callahan's sister testified that he had spent the night at her house that night and Callahan took the stand himself and he testified that he had been drinking that night, but he was certain that he hadn't been involved in any kidnapping mm-hmm. as for his pocket of gold coins. He wasn't really sure where those came from. Oh, but, that's, that's uh, typical. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't really account for them. I always have just pockets full of money. Never know Never where know the where money comes from. from. So in their closing arguments, the defense, um, he had two attorneys, Charles Hale, Holler. (laughs) Charles Holler and John McFarland said that the defendant had not committed any robbery since Mr. Cudahy had given the money freely and did not expect it to be returned. So even if those gold coins came from the ransom, that wasn't robbery. He had left that money there. Wow. They said it didn't money matter what that money was given for. It's not pertinent since the kidnapping of a 16-year-old isn't even illegal under Nebraska law. Wow. Yeah. So the judge was like angered by this closing argument. Uh-huh. And he told the jury that they must convict Callahan of robbery if they believed that Cudahy had paid the kidnappers because they put him in fear about his son. Mm-hmm. So if the jury believed that Callahan had gotten the money from Mr. Cudahy, if it was the ransom money, even though it's not a crime on the books, they have to convict if right. he believe, if they believe that. The jury deliberated for like no time. Uh-huh. And on April 28th, they announced their verdict. Not guilty. <gasps> 
Not fucking guilty. You're kidding me. Yeah. So, oh my gosh. So this story is crazy. So Callahan gets up and he's like beaming and smiling. And he's like, he's walks towards the jury box and he says, your honor, my attorneys aren't here right now, but I would like to say a word on my own behalf and thank the jurors. And the judge yells, sit down. These jurors don't deserve any thanks. Whoa. Yes. And then he tur- the judge turned to the jury and he said he could not conceive of 12 intelligent men returning a verdict of this kind. Wow. He said that juries were to protect society and uphold laws, not make heroes of men who prey upon people and upon their property. Wow. Yeah. This story is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Everything about it is unbelievable, yes. including a judge saying that to yeah. the jury, although I agree with the yes. judge completely. My God. So that judge, when he retired 35 years later, he was speaking to a reporter about his yeah. time as a judge, and he said, there was no legitimate reason for Callahan's acquittal. The man was proven guilty. I can only account for it on the ground that the jury was prejudiced prejudiced against wealthy people as represented by the Cudahy's. Wow. Yeah. But Callahan was not released despite his acquittal. He was charged with seven counts of perjury (laughs) (laughs) and he was held until his trial in November. But at that trial, he was acquitted again. You're kidding. Nope. Acquitted on all counts. So it's October of 1901 now. Oh my God. Fucking... Callahan is one of the kidnappers. He's been arrested. He's been charged. He's been acquitted. Right. Pat Crow, wherever he's at, is following this in the papers. And he does something so crazy. He writes a letter to Edward Callahan, and he offers to return the $21,000 of ransom that he has left if... Cudahy will remove the reward for his arrest. Wait, what? Yes. Because apparently Pat Crow saw this as like some kind of attack on him being an honorable criminal. (laughs) Yes. Oh, yeah. So he's like, I will give you back the money if you simply remove the award for my arrest. Move the reward for my arrest. Because I I hate to have that mm-hmm. besmirching my be good smirching name. Besmirching my good name as this folk legend hero. Yeah. Wow. And and Edward writes back and he says, I would rather spend my last thousand dollars than compromise with you. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But Pat Crow did not give up. Of course he didn't. He contacted the police chief and he offered to surrender if the $50,000 reward was dropped and if authorities would agree to set his bond at $500. Yeah. So he shows up to jail and then promptly leaves. Right. That would be the idea. And so. What a brave criminal. The police chief goes and talks to the Cudahy's and basically gives them no option. He's like, you have to do this. 
I'm requiring you to do this. You mm-hmm. must drop the reward. Mm-hmm. And so they do. But this is a criminal. Yeah. He doesn't stick to his word. Another fucking five years go by. He never comes forward. <laughs> Fast forward. It's the spring of 1905. So I guess five years total okay. have gone by. Okay. And Crow surfaces in Omaha. He's tired of living as a fugitive. He's anxious to begin a new life. He's ready to face a jury. Wow. And be tried for his crime. Uh-huh. But uh what's so he, he do- he's, Hold he, on. What's he being tried for this time? Well, let's get there. Okay, okay. So he's, he does an interview with a reporter about this. He doesn't okay. go to the police and tell them this. He does an interview with a reporter. Okay. So that's in the newspaper. Yeah. What, he, what was really true was that he'd run out of ransom money. Mm-hmm. He'd blown through all of that money in four years. And then so he gives. It's spring when he gives that. He talks to that reporter. The reporter agrees to hide his you know location or whatever for the interview. And then he disappears again. Until September 5th of 1905, when he's spotted by two officers just, like, walking down the street in Omaha. Mm -hmm. The police call headquarters, and two detectives hurry there, and a gunfight breaks out. They call it the the Battle of Hickory Street. Crow wounded one of the police officers and escaped. This guy is nuts. Oh, my God. A month later, he gets pulled over in Montana. Yeah. I guess not pulled over because it's 1906. <laughs> he gets stopped. I guess he's on foot. Okay, okay. He gets stopped by two patrol officers and they recognize him. His face is all over the place. Sure, they sure. recognize him. They secure him in a set of handcuffs and then they are able to extradite him back to Omaha. Finally. They have him in custody. But they still have to figure out what to charge him with. Yeah. Because he hasn't committed a crime, according to Nebraska law. But they can charge him with, they've got him on a $50 robbery of a streetcar. And they've got him for the shooting of the officer in that street battle. But they already they already tried him for that. He already did his time. Different. That was a different shootout. This is the shootout where they tried to arrest him in Omaha. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Yes. All right. Yes. He's been involved in multiple shootouts, Kristen. I'm I'm having trouble with this guy. He's yeah. done a lot. And then finally, they're going to charge him with robbery for the Cudahy case. That's as much as they can get him on. Robbery for the $25,000. So they've already charged his cohort. Now mm-hmm. they've... It's, Four years later, and they finally track down the ringleader, Pat okay, Crow. Okay. So they charge him with all of those. He, of course, pleads not guilty. And his trial is set to begin in November of 1905. Uh, first, he is tried for the shooting of the police officer. That's the first thing they're going to charge him with. That's the first trial, I mean. I'm sorry. The defense said that Pat Crow was merely defending himself. The officer was not in uniform, and he did not identify himself as a police officer. Oh, so and you're he just... had fired first. 
Is any of that true? No idea. <laughs> okay. There were about four days of testimony, after which the jury deliberated for 80 minutes and acquitted him. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. But the judge ordered that Crow be held on $7,000 bail um, and that they would move forward with the robbery charges for the Cudahy kidnapping. Okay. Okay. That trial was set to begin in February of 1906. Public response to this was nuts. Okay. Like people were lining up every day to get into the gallery. Like they wanted to be a part of this. But Crow wasn't doing himself any favors. He had written a letter while he was in custody that the prosecution was going to use against him. So... The prosecutor knew that they believed that the reason that they had been having trouble convicting Callahan, the first man, and then hadn't convicted Crow on the first charge was that because people didn't have sympathy for the Cudahy's. Right. That's exactly right. Yes, because they were seen as having a monopoly on the industry. And so the prosecutor had planned to get a jury that he thought would work in his favor. He wanted a white collar jury. Yes. Um, because he feared that the that blue collar workers would be predisposed against the Cudahy family. They would be prejudiced. They wouldn't they would automatically side with Crow. And so that's what he went into this jury selection with a plan to do. And he failed miserably. The jury was made up of a packing house employee, a cook, a railroad delivery clerk, a sign painter, a shoe dealer, a butcher, a bank janitor, a house painter, a dry goods dealer, a poultry supplier, a carpenter, and a driver. Well, damn. Yes. How do you mess up that? We didn't badly? get a single white collar worker on that on that jury. And by this time, all, almost five years have passed. Eddie Cudahy is not this scrawny kid that everybody. Yeah. Want to feel sorry for this kidnapping for. He's 21 years old. He's over six feet tall. Like, he's this big dude. And the jury did not see him as a sympathetic figure at all. Sure. Sure. The prosecution, like, tried to overkill this trial, basically. They called 96 witnesses. Oh, my God. And then they read a letter that Crow had written while he was in in jail. So he had written it to like this priest that he had known when he was a kid. And he asked the priest to help him because he believed that the Cudahy's were like a good Catholic family. And he wanted the priest to contact them and ask them to remove the reward. This is when he was in the middle of talk, like trying to negotiate with the Mm Cudahy's to mm -hmm. get them to remove the reward. And so this is the letter he wrote to this priest. He said, I am guilty of the Cudahy affair. I am to blame for the whole thing. After it was over, I regretted my act and I offered to return $21,000 to Cudahy, but he refused to take it. So there's a letter that is presented as evidence in court of him admitting that he did it. It seemed like it was a slam dunk case. The World, the Omaha World Herald wrote, the case was overwhelming, irrefutable. There was no loophole for Crow. When it was the defense's turn to put on their case, 
They didn't call a single witness. Instead, they told the judge that they looked forward to closing arguments. (gasps) What? During their closing argument... Crow's defense attorney led the jury on this crazy journey that touched on everything but the kidnapping. Uh huh. He talked about the history of law, the Catholic Church, <laughs> Martin Luther, religious reform, old glory, Abraham Lincoln, ethics. What? And of course, the beef trust. <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> and then he used it was like he had written out his summation and then gone to a thesaurus and picked out words that nobody had any idea what he what they would mean. He spoke over this jury's head in an attempt to make him sound very intelligent. The words that he said, I I don't even know what they are. Irrefragable. (laughs) It means indisputable. (laughs) Sorry. I just spat right in the microphone. (laughs) Animadvert means to take note of chimerical. It means imaginary. These are words that he used in his summation to the jury. With the the idea that maybe he could intimidate them, I don't think that he, he could intimidate them. I think that they not intimidate them, but impress them and think uh-huh. this guy's really got it together. We listen to this guy for yeah. sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, mm. and he said he he um, played on the emotions of the jury, and he said that Edward Cudahy's wealth gave him an unfair advantage over the poor farm boy Pat Crow. Uh huh. He didn't deny the crow was the kidnapper, but he said that the defendant had committed an act of contrition in the letter with the priest. He was no. sorry. Wasn't that enough? No, he wasn't sorry. <laughs> he didn't say he was sorry at all. No. <laughs> so everyone, the jury, the people in the gallery were listening to this summation like, so intently they were on the edges of their seats they were laughing they were cheering they were making so much noise and breaking out so frequently during it that the judge threatened to clear the courtroom wow yes in the end the defense attorney apologized for his lengthy summation oh yeah i'm sure he was real sorry yes about as sorry as pat was The Chicago Examiner wrote a piece on the summation, and they called it the best speech in a criminal case ever made in Omaha. Okay. Well, I thought you were going to say ever, so... No. They they toned it down a bit. They did tone it down a bit. The jury deliberated for 17 hours. The prosecutor felt pretty good about that. They Mm -hmm. actually spent some time deliberating, and then they returned their verdict. Not guilty. Of course. When the verdict was read, the everyone in the gallery cheered. Were working conditions at this time so bad? Oh, I'm sure bad they must have been. That it was just like if any bad thing happened to a wealthy person, it was yeah. like, woohoo, woo-hoo fuck yeah. them. So when the gallery breaks out and cheers, the judge admonished them. He said, I am greatly surprised that the acquittal of a notorious criminal in this courtroom should be received with applause. He then turned to the jury and said, this court is very much surprised that a jury would pass a verdict clearing such a notorious criminal. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Hmm. I guess it's all who we relate to. I mean, the judges, I assume it was different judges in these two cases. Yes, different judges. Judges are rich guys, right? Yeah, So they're like, they're like getting a glimpse into... 
what's going to happen if someone kidnaps my kid? Yeah. Mm. The police chief called this a travesty of justice. And most viewed the decision not as an acquittal on Crow, but a a statement on against men like Edward Cudahy, who had monopolized industries. That was mm-hmm. something that was going on a lot at that time. And it was like what you said, like, oh, yeah, finally, something bad happens to them. Yeah. The Omaha Daily News said it was nothing more than we could expect from the jury. Composed as it was largely of laboring men, Cudahy, in their minds, is robbing the people in small amounts three times a day. And Pat Crow got back part of this money in one big chunk, and he didn't hurt anybody at all. There's no dirt. There is no doubt that the jury thought it no worse to steal from one child than it is to starve many. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. The Washington Post took a different view on it. They said, Omaha is evidently a happy hunting ground for savages and malefactors. Wow. Crow had one more crime he was facing that uh, trolley car robbery of $50. Um, For that, he had to be transferred to Omaha, which is just across the river, or transferred to Council Bluffs, which is just across the river into Iowa. And he arrived there as a hero. People were waiting in the streets for him and cheering him on. And again, he was found not guilty. Incredible. Yeah. Isn't that nuts? Oh, Um, he maintained his kind of folk legend status for a few more years. And then he ended up dying in a flop house in Harlem with no money. What's a flop house? Like a hostel. Oh, okay. Is that a, is that a term everyone knows? Yeah, I think so. Flop house. Flop house. Yeah. Yeah. That's what people know. That. Um, not before writing a lovely letter to Ed, Eddie Jr. on his, when he heard that he was getting married. So in 1919, uh-huh. Edward Cudahy Jr. was married and he received a telegram from Pat Crow that said, no one could wish you greater happiness in the hands of your new kidnapper than <gasps> I do. Here's hoping you will cherish no ill will over our former escapade and enjoy this one more. Signed, your old kidnapper. Fuck off. Yep. What an ass. Yeah. As for Eddie, he went on to be the head of the company. He relocated it to Chicago and then he retired to Arizona in 1961 and died there in 1966. In the 1960s, the uh, meatpacking industry changed a lot. Um, Rural slaughterhouses, small farms were able to outprice the larger companies. And all of the big five, with the exception of Armour, went under. Wow. Uh, In 1967, the Cudahy Slaughterhouse in Omaha was closed. And a year later, the Cudahy Mansion was raised and apartments stand there now. And that's the story of the craziest old timey kidnapping. That really is. Isn't that nuts? I loved that story. 
bizarre, right? It's totally bizarre. Again, the only thing I can think is that working conditions we were had to be so, so terrible. Bad. They're like, finally, something bad happens to these rich assholes. And, and you know, not even really, like, I mean, the kid did survive. Yeah. He was unharmed. At yeah. least, you know, yeah. physically Physically unharmed. unharmed, yeah. My God. Yeah. That whole thing was astounding. Yeah. I don't know what to say. Okay, let me grab some more water. Yes. Tell us about our bigot cake baker. (laughs) (laughs) No, Brandy. Oh, I'm sorry. Is that not the case you're doing? I think the liberal media has gotten to your brain. Oh. Because if anyone's the victim here... It's her. It's the cake baker. I don't even know that it's a her. I guess it's I a him. Say her. It's a okay. him. Okay. <laughs> no. Okay. This is this is a famous cake case. Yeah. Are we ready? I'm ready. It was 2012. Yeah. And Charlie Craig and David Mullins were in love. In fact, they were so in love that they decided to get married. It was a little tricky though, uh, because they lived in Colorado, and at the time. The Colorado State Constitution prohibited gay marriage. Barf. Yeah. But Charlie and David weren't going to let legalized homophobia stop them. They had a plan. They'd go to Massachusetts where same-sex marriage was legal. They'd get married. Then they'd come back to Lakewood, Colorado to celebrate with friends and family. So they'd basically have like a, you know, a reception or whatever. Sounds great, right? Absolutely. What could possibly go wrong? I don't know. Something with the cake? How dare you? (laughs) So in July, Charlie and David were getting things ready for their reception, and they went into Masterpiece Cake Shop to order a wedding cake. Masterpiece Cake Masterpiece. What did I say? Did I say Masterpiece? No, you said Masterpiece, I think, but it sounds like like as if Master P, the rapper, opened a cake shop. Is that a is that a rapper, Master P? Make him say, uh. You don't know that song? You're going to have to say more than that. That's all I know of it, Kristen. <laughs> I got to look it up. Okay. Yeah, and his kid's somebody famous, too. Master P. Make him say. Okay, pass one. He never gave a fuck about no hoes, Kristen. <laughs> okay, turn that off before we get copyright claimed on this. Hold on, you gotta get to the refrain. You really don't know the song? No. Make clearly, say, uh. clearly, I'm the only one because it says here, as of 2019, Masterpiece's net worth is roughly 200 million dollars. So, is that true? Well, I don't know that it's true. It's from a site called Wealthy Gorilla, so it make probably his is money not. Off of, I don't making know. Making it say, uh, no, 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 no. Oh well, he's a former basketball player. Yeah, record producer. Mm. Well, he must make all of his money from producing. Yeah, probably. Okay. Anyway, I can't believe you never heard of Master P. I can't believe you interrupted this story for that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Make me say, shut up. <laughs> okay. Uh, la la. So they go into this cake shop. They're so excited. They went in there actually on the recommendation of their wedding planner. 
and they had a ton of ideas for their cake. But the conversation didn't last long. Uh-huh. Right off the bat, the owner, Jack Phillips, asked them who the cake was for. And Charlie and David were like, uh, it's for us. Yeah. At that point, Jack had to stop them. Yes, they'd walked into a cake shop with the insane goal of trying to buy a cake, Mm -hmm. but he couldn't help them. You see, he's a good Christian man, and therefore it was against his religious beliefs to make a wedding cake for two dudes. God would see that cake and be super pissed at Jack. I don't think he would. Yeah, yeah, that's the way God works. It's not. God is really petty. God. <laughs> yeah, no, God says love everyone, so. Hmm. Hmm. So Jack refused to make a wedding cake for Charlie and David. Yeah. And Charlie said that after that, Jack was like, okay, this, this is ridiculous. So Jack is one of these, like, guys who wants to say something homophobic. Yeah. Like, I'm not making you a cake because yeah, I believe you're going to die in a fiery pit or something. Right. But at the same time, like wants everyone to be real nice to him about uh-huh. it and like leave with a smile on yeah. their face. I don't know. So at this point, Charlie says that Jack was like, uh, you know, I, I do have gay friends. And okay. um, if you want to buy some cookies or some cupcakes, I'd be more than happy to sell those to you. What, not a cake? No, he can't. The fuck's the difference? Brandy, Brandy, he can't make them a wedding cake because that would be him endorsing gay marriage. No. Yes, it would. Yes, it, it would. would. not. But selling them cookies, that would not be an endorsement on their marriage. That's so dumb. I agree. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So Charlie and David were like, no thanks. Yeah. You look like you're going to throw up. <laughs> well, that's so, that's ridiculous fucking logic. Yeah. And by the way, if you refuse to make a wedding cake for someone because they're in a same-sex relationship, I'm going to say you probably don't actually have gay friends. Yeah. Like, give me a break, dude. Yeah, probably not. So Jack says that they swore at him and flipped him off, which he did not appreciate, Mm. and Evidently did not anticipate, which I'm like, how... How did you not? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so Charlie and David left the bakery. They were super upset. They said they felt degraded and humiliated. They said they'd never gone through anything like that before. So they went on social media and told their friends what had happened. Yeah. Charlie told his mom, Deborah. I actually don't know if he told her individually or if she just saw this. But the next day, she called Masterpiece Cake Shop and was like, uh, hi, um, my son and his fiance wanted to try to buy a cake from you. What, what is your problem? Uh-huh. And Jack doubled down. He's a God-fearing Christian man, and he just wanted to embody that classic church hymn, they all know we are Christians by our hate. That's not a song, Kristen. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know the song I'm parodying? I don't. (laughs) There's a song. They will know. That's that's not the right. Anyway. I think that was. uh, What? She'll be coming around the mountain. Yeah, that was. That was. (laughs) No, it's. um, They'll know we are Christians by our love. Okay. 
And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Oh, I love that song. Anyway, I should probably pause here and say, so I grew up. You grew up very, yeah. I grew up going to church every week. Yeah. My family was super into church. Yeah. This case got me so pissed off and brought back all these old memories just because the church I grew up in was open and affirming. Yeah. So... It wasn't one of those places where it's like, gay people are going to hell for this, that, or nothing. Yeah. And it also wasn't one of those weirdo places that tries to be, <laughs> I almost hate these places more, that try to somehow be in the middle. In the middle, yeah. Like, where it's, oh, maybe we'll just pretend that it doesn't exist. <laughs> well, the thing I've always heard people say, which I think is <sighs> so frustrating, Love the sinner, hate the sin. No, it's not a sin. Exactly. No. Exactly. Ugh. And like, look at yourself before you do that. Absolutely. How about, he who is without sin cast the first stone, asswipe. Yes. I, I believe that's, that's exactly a, a direct, direct quote <laughs> from the Bible. <laughs> I think that's in Corinthians, right? <laughs> so no, I I just like, my, my church experience growing up was so positive. Yeah. It was so fun. It was... A very loving, positive community. Yeah. And I really think it's so gross and so hateful when people act like, oh, well, I'm a Christian and therefore I have to hate gay people. Yeah, no. I submit that if you feel like as part of Christianity, you have to hate someone, you're doing it wrong. Absolutely. And God is not pleased. Not pleased at all. Okay. Anyway, so that's that's my rant. You ready to put that soapbox away? I, it just makes me so oh, mad. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. It makes I think me it's the most so, ridiculous bullshit. So mad because the Bible can <laughs> it's back out, Brandy. You <laughs> joked about the Bible can be used to justify so many horrible Whatever, things. Yeah, exactly. It can be used to justify slavery. Yes. It can be used to justify being horrible to women it can be used to justify all sorts of things yeah. if you want to use it that yes. way why the fuck would you want to use it that exactly. way exactly when you could focus on all the passages about love and compassion and forgiveness and i don't know worrying about yourself yeah so okay now it's it's gone is it gone for real this time probably not no i mean i'm it. like i'm like three paragraphs into this. wonderful <laughs> So he told Deborah that he didn't make wedding cakes for same-sex couples for two reasons. And they are? Number one, his religious beliefs prevented him from spreading the fondant. No. Number two. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Number two, the state of Colorado did not recognize same-sex marriages. So? Why do you care, buddy? Yeah. You're making the cake. Yes. That's uh, a ridiculous argument. So here's the deal with Jack. He has been a Christian for approximately 35 years, mm. and he believes that decorating cakes is an art form, which I, I, I'm totally, I with, I'm totally yeah. with him on that. He also believes that he can honor God through his artistic talents. Okay, I don't have an issue with that I don't that have an either. issue with that either. But if he were to make some of his edible art for a same-sex marriage, God would be displeased. Don't worry. 
Charlie and David did eventually find a bakery that get this. People are really missing out because they can't see all the eye rolling that I'm doing. (laughs) I was going to say, you're doing a lot of head shaking. Uh, So much head shaking, so much eye rolling. This is infuriating to me. Do you want to talk a little? I mean, I got on my soapbox. I just think, I I mean, I don't have anything more to add than what you said. I completely agree with everything you said. Like, Mm -hmm. it's so... It's so ridiculous to pick out to pick and choose what you want to believe that God controls. If you believe that like God makes everybody special and God makes everybody the way they are, then you then choose to believe that that's not how God made them. That's so ridiculous to Mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. And I still am like, so, you know, for a long time it was like, well, is it a choice or is it a choice? And it's like, first of all, let's say it is a choice. It's not, but let's it's say not. it is. Yeah. Then who fucking cares? Who fucking cares? Who fucking cares? Who fucking cares? It makes me so mad. How is it hurting you in any fucking way that these two guys want to get married? It is not affecting you at all. Why do you get a say? My other thing is, okay, so... You making this cake. That's an endorsement of their marriage. No, it's well, not. But let's say it is. Fine. Are it you is. Are, So then you're endorsing every marriage that you've ever made a cake for? Yeah. What if that guy's beating his wife? You're what, endorsing that. That's okay? What if they had <gasps> premarital sex? Oh my gosh, what if they lived together prior oh, to the wedding? You're ooh. endorsing that. Heavens to Betsy. Oh my gosh, what if they only do anal? You're endorsing that. <laughs> Other people who only <laughs> <laughs> My God. I was I was pretending to be shocked and then I got really shocked. <laughs> so Charlie and David did eventually find a bakery that made them a cake. But in the meantime, they were still pretty pissed about being refused service. They were like, that was not okay. Yeah. So they filed a complaint with the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Because even though same-sex marriage was illegal in Colorado, the state... I I have something in my notes that does not make sense. (laughs) Oh, no, it does make sense. Okay, I I was just... (laughs) Even though... Same-sex marriage was illegal in Colorado. The state did have the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act. Mm -hmm. Okay, so under this act, a business which is open to the public cannot discriminate against customers on the basis of race, religion, gender, or sexual orientation. And I believe some other things. Yeah. But, all right, so we're going to pause, do a quick side note. Yeah. There was a federal law that says that a public business can't discriminate against people. But it didn't include any protection for gay people. I don't know if that's changed now. I Uh hope it's changed now. But at the time of this legal battle, Colorado was one of like 21 states that had protections for for sexual orientation. So Charlie and David filed their complaint, and that complaint resulted in a lawsuit. I saw this written a few different ways, but it looks like the first step was an administrative judge would look at this. And the administrative judge found that, indeed, 
Jack had violated the law. Yeah. He was operating a business that serves the public, and he discriminated against Charlie and David on the basis of their sexual orientation. And I'm so damn sorry, but you can't do that. You can't do that. Yeah. The court didn't make Jack pay any damages, but the judge did say, hey, you can't discriminate against same-sex couples anymore. Yeah. You're done with that. And by the way, you need to provide comprehensive staff training on how to not be an asshat to your staff. I believe he had like 10, uh-huh. 10 employees at this place. How do you think Jack took it? Not well. Uh, no, no. <laughs> he was pissed. He said he would rather close his cake shop than make wedding cakes for same-sex couples. Oh, my gosh. Are you fucking kidding? Yeah. He was not ordered to pay money. He was not. I mean, he was just told, hey, man, you can't do that. You're running a public business here. Yeah. Where you make cakes for a living. Yeah. Can't turn people away because you don't like that. There are two dudes. Yeah. (sighs) So um, (laughs) rather than comply with the order, he closed his business. Holy shit. By this point. Uh, People were fired up on both sides of the issue. A lot of people felt that Jack had discriminated against Charlie and David. Yes. Yes. But other people disagreed. They felt that, if anything, Jack was the victim of discrimination. Don't make that face, Brandy. In America, I don't know if you know this, we have a little thing called freedom of religion. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jack was just practicing his religion. He shouldn't have to go against his religious beliefs just because Charlie and David want to have a delicious wedding cake. Oh That's not right. That's not the kind of country I want to live in. <laughs> <laughs> so at some point, the, the Civil Rights Commission had weighed in on this. They'd also agreed yeah. with the administrative judge. I don't know if that was all part of one process, but anyway... Jack appealed this decision. Mm-hmm. And this time, he had a little help from the Alliance Defending Freedom, which... Mm. Why are you making that face? It sounds like a bunch of bigots. Oh, no, no, it's a no. a giant group of bigots. You've got it all wrong. It's just a conservative Christian group that oh, advocates... No. <laughs> <laughs> Those are rough words together. That advocates on issues of religious freedom. Okay. Oh, are you against religious freedom? Sanctity of life and marriage and family. Mm. So, okay. So they're anti-abortion too, obviously. (laughs) Well, and we're making fun. We're making fun. I know we're making fun. But I do want to say one nice thing. This group has done... A ton of great work because they are, you know, a group that focuses on the families. So they've done a lot of great work trying to stop the separation of families at the border right now. Oh, that's surprising. That's a joke. (laughs) Fuck off, Christine! (laughs) No, they don't care about those families. Oh my gosh! How dare you do that to me? I totally made that up. Maybe they have. Maybe it's like the most shocking thing ever, and they have helped. No, they definitely haven't. They're too busy (laughs) marching on Washington and demanding no one ever get an abortion ever. (laughs) How about about this? How about we all mind our own fucking business and worry about ourselves? No, Brandy. No. If 
we have to worry about ourselves and we might have to deal with our own yeah, secret sexual why desires. You're a fucking bigot, yes. <laughs> anyway, Jack now has this group helping him, and Charlie and David had the help of the ACLU and the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. So we've got like the 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 sides are forming up right now. Yeah. I, I lost my words, so I just like swung my That's, arms out it. like a it looks like you're a, an eagle. I was gonna say and goose. <laughs> That's, you know, fighting off somebody coming near her young. <laughs> fighting off the alliance defending freedom. Yes. Back <laughs> off my uterus. <laughs> <laughs> so meanwhile, Jack and Charlie and David, you know, all three of them are getting a lot of hate from yeah. different sides, Diff- obviously. All the sides. <laughs> all the sides. Anti-gay people were being awful to Charlie and David. And Jack was very surprised that people were being mean to him. So the LA... What? What? It was so funny. The LA Times did this article. And Jack talked about um, how people threw garbage at his shop. They wrote a bunch of negative reviews online. He said he even got death threats. Which, I mean, none of that is good. None of that is nice. Well, I mean, actually, the negative reviews. I'm totally fine with that. I'm fine with... Yeah. But... He just seemed so genuinely shocked. Shocked. I I think he's one of these people who genuinely does not believe that he is discriminating against mm-hmm. someone and genuinely believes that he's the victim in the story. Mm-hmm. He said, "I will serve anyone who comes in and I think I can make friends with them." Mhm. Did Again, to me, it that that kind of tiptoes into that whole love the sinner, hate the sin, where mm-hmm. I can be looking down on you big yeah. time. I can think but, that terrible th- you're doing terrible things, but at the same time, somehow... I'm, he's already proven that that's not true, though. He refused them. So, But his theory is, if gay people want to come into his shop and He'll buy something anything but make them a wedding cake because that would be him endorsing that's terrible same sex logic. marriage yes it's so so stupid so now we're in appellate court jack has removed himself from the cake making business because he refuses to com- comply with the lower mm-hmm. court's order but once again things don't go his way the appellate court agreed with the lower court's decision and even said Hey, buddy, we don't mean to state the obvious, but by merely complying with an anti-discrimination law, you yourself are not in any way conveying a message that you actually support same-sex marriage. Yeah. You're just complying with a law, which is what all public businesses have Have to to do. In court, Jack's lawyers had argued that making a cake was essentially an expression of free speech. Because it was made specifically for that couple. It was unique. It was custom. But the court was like, yeah, no, mm-hmm. not not exactly. No. You you own a cake shop. Making a custom cake is just part of what you do. Yeah, it's one of the ser- services you offer. Yeah. Right. It's not an expression of free speech or an exercise of your religion. It's just what you do as a cake maker yeah. operating a public business. Okay, so by this point, there was like a weird 
amount of cases regarding cakes, sexuality, and discrimination. Yeah. Because I guess at this time, same-sex marriages were becoming more popular. So all of a sudden this, and you know, ugh, one such case had actually taken place in Colorado. Mm-hmm. So while they're at it, this appellate court was like, hey, we're going to take a minute to distinguish this case from that other case. Because we feel like people, you know, I think they thought people might see their ruling in this one and get confused. So they want to make okay. make it very clear, here's why that court decided that, here's why we're deciding this. Are you ready for the other case? Yes. Picture it. A man walks into a bakery. Mm-hmm. He says, hello, I'd like to buy two Bible-shaped cakes, please. Mm-hmm. Which I'm pretty sure is just a normal sheet cake. It's just a square. But, you know, okay, That's whatever. Re- rectangle. <laughs> On one, I'd like you to do a little image of two grooms and then put a big X over them. Then write, God hates sin. Psalm 45.7. Oh, my goodness. And don't stop there. When you get to the other one, just write, homosexuality is a detestable sin. Leviticus 18.22. And the cake shop refused. (laughs) First of all, that's not the same fucking thing. See, I just want to know. What party is this no, guy? No, can you imagine? You show up. There's a sheet cake. And it's got to be like the graduation of one of those pray the gay away camps, right? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> who's that? Who's that politician whose husband runs the? I can't remember. I don't know. And that probably describes like a million yeah. politicians. I don't know. There's a politician whose husband runs a pray the gay away thing. Yeah, and he's Is for that sure a real gay. Thing? Yeah. This isn't from a movie. No, hang on, hang on. It's not like the fix the vampires thing in True Blood. Politician, um, husband, uh, gay camp. <laughs> Oh, I'm just seeing a lot of Pete Buttigieg. That's oh Michelle Bachman. Yeah, her her husband. Yeah, runs a pray the gay away camp. I believe so. I believe that's just what I. Yeah. Okay. Oh no. <laughs> so this big. This well, big, she's a. Well, yeah, she's a nut job. She's too. a tea bagger, right? Tea <laughs> tea partier. <laughs> Don't say tea bagger. Are you setting up the term? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think she was a tea party. Yeah. yeah. Huh. So the baker was like, dude, I'm not writing that. How about we compromise? I will sell you the Bible-shaped cakes. You do the other stuff. And I'll even give you the bag of icing. You can write whatever you want, but I'm yeah. not writing that. So the dude flips out. And by the way, he tried this at like three different bakeries and they all turned him down. Yes. I'm going to imagine that this was a stunt for him. Because really, I I still maintain, although your your guess about the gay conversion. (laughs) (laughs) Not bad, right? Not bad. I cannot imagine any other (laughs) setting. They think it's Parents' Day at gay conversion camp. Oh, it's Irene's last day at the office. Let's get her a cake. I know what we'll write on it. <laughs> so this guy was like, 
you know why they turned me down? <laughs> they were discriminating against me because I am a Christian. And the anti-discrimination law says you can't discriminate for religion, so where's my cake? Mm. So he filed a complaint with the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. <laughs> Do you need to take a minute? You got something to say? Well, it's not like... I'm sorry, I've forgotten the gentlemen's names in the original. Charlie and David. Okay, it's not like Charlie and David walked in there and asked... Jack to make a cake that says I love fucking dudes in the ass. <laughs> okay. Brandon. Signed Jack the cake maker. Like <laughs> signed Jack the cake. <laughs> okay, that Yeah. That would be as close That's to the equivalent, the equivalent as I can come up with right now. Yes. It's not the same. <laughs> okay. Very good. <laughs> so it's about it's about the message yes. to you. Yes. Okay, that's kind of close to what the court found. The court basically found, no, the baker didn't refuse to make your cake because you are a Christian. She refused to make your cake because she found the message offensive. offensive. Yes. And that's an important difference. It is. So the appellate court in Charlie and David's case was like, the case is different from the Bible cake guy Mm -hmm. because those other bakeries that turned that guy down turned him down based on the message he wanted written on the cake. But Jack turned Charlie and David down because he doesn't approve of same-sex marriage. Right. And we consider that to be discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Duh. Duh. So, Charlie and David won their first case. They won the appeal, which makes total sense. And that's where this story ends. Goodbye. No, it's not. No. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, Jack and his conservative Christian buddies were pissed off. Mm-hmm. So they were like, you know what? We should take this case all the way to the Colorado Supreme Court. And the Colorado Supreme Court was like, no, thank you. thank you. So Jack and his buddies were like, that's fine. Because you know where we'd rather take this case? All the way to the Supreme Court. Jack and his merry band of homophobes were itching to get this thing to the Supreme Court because the Alliance Defending Freedom had taken on a few different lawsuits where businesses refused to provide services to same-sex couples. Mm-hmm. Again, this is like the, the... It's all around the marriage stuff. Yeah. They fought for a photographer in New Mexico, a florist in Washington, but here's the thing. They kept losing. Yeah. Yeah. As they should have. It seemed clear that a lot of the state's courts weren't swayed by their arguments. But what about the highest court in all the land? (laughs) I don't know if I can handle it, Kristen. I know. If they could get the Supreme Court to weigh in, and the Supreme Court came down on their side, it would be a complete game changer for the entire country. Kristen Wagner um, was one of the attorneys for the Alliance Defending Freedom, and she said that this was all about tolerance. She said, tolerance should be a two-way street. The First Amendment protects Jack's right to create artistic expression that is consistent with his core convictions. Hmm. It's funny. 
I don't think that's a terrible argument. To it's try, really not. To try to make it about artistic expression yes, and free speech. It's really not. But again, I just think if you're running a public business and this is part of what you do, I, it's not an endorsement yeah. of any of your customers. It's not. But Louise Melling. What if a devil worshiper uh-huh. came in and wanted a wedding cake for their devil wedding? Would he have made that? See, that's the thing. Is I don't think he would have known that they were. Exactly. Yeah. But like, okay, so he's super duper Christian. What if a Jewish couple walks yeah. in? Yeah. Is he going to make something for their wedding? Like, where does, where does, where the, does where his does disapproval he... begin and yeah. end? And what if only one of the gentlemen had come in and he hadn't known that it was a Well, then that's same fine sex. because he wouldn't have, you know, once once he figured it out, Brandy. Oh. Okay. So Louise Melling, who was the deputy director of the ACLU, was like, you know, okay. You know, she'd heard the other side's argument. Mm-hmm. And she's like, but think about where that could go. If, yeah. if we have a constitutional right to discriminate against other people based on our religion... Where are the limits? Could a landlord refuse to rent to unmarried couples? Yes. Could a Christian baker, oh, I guess I just stole her example. Could a Christian baker refuse to serve Jewish customers? See, and that's my my thing. It's like, yes, I believe that there's an argument that cake making is an art form, sure. But this creates a really scary, slippery slope for discrimination. So... A lot of people did not expect the Supreme Court to weigh in on this. First of all, because the Supreme Court only takes so many cases. Mm -hmm. And also because they'd had the opportunity to weigh in on a similar case a few years prior, and they hadn't been interested. Mm -hmm. But in 2017, the court agreed to hear their case. Oral arguments began in December. So here was the argument for Masterpiece Cake Shop. Look, Colorado has this law. And the aim of that law is to ensure that same-sex couples have access to the same services Mm -hmm. as a heterosexual couple. And you know what? That's great. But Colorado has gone way, way cuckoo overboard trying to enforce this law. Because you know what? Charlie and David easily got their wedding cake. They just had to buy it from somewhere else. No harm done. No. Yeah. No, I don't like this at all. I don't, yeah. This is, this smells a little bit like, oh no, well, you know, you can't use the same water fountain as yeah, me. You'll have exactly. to use that one over there. Yeah. It's, it's provided to you. Yeah. That's bullshit. It is bullshit. And by the way, this is supposed to be an anti-discrimination law, but you know what it's doing? It's discriminating Discriminating. (laughs) against religion. Yeah. And you know how we know it? Because the state allows bakers to refuse to make anti-same-sex marriage cakes. Discrimination! Mm Mm-hmm. They really wanted that, you know... Yeah. Anti-gay cake. Ugh. Ugh. But the state of Colorado... Yes, it allows... The state allows you to discriminate against discrimination. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, yeah, and like, there's nothing wrong with that. So back oh off. Oh my gosh! So the 
the opposite side, the state of Colorado and the ACLU were like, oh, oh, hold on, hold up, wait a minute. First of all, that law you're talking about. Ain't number two different. <laughs> you got that booty. Is only aimed at the conduct of a business. It is not aimed at anyone's free speech. Mm. And by the way, let's talk about fucking wedding cakes for a second. Okay. No reasonable person is going to see a wedding cake at a same-sex couple's wedding and thinks to think to themselves, my goodness, the person who baked that cake and spread the fondant clearly endorses gay marriage. I'm sorry, how is it that you think fondant goes on, Kristen? Oh, is it? You know, it's it's like that, that um, you're right, it's more like a it's like they hard Play-Doh. Yeah, okay, yeah. well, anyway. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> so they were like, no, bitch. People are going to think that you're a baker who yes, made a cake. Who no makes one's, a cake. No one's going to think anything no. about your religious views. Nope. And by the way, if any business is super upset about this law and thinks that people are going to misunderstand their politics or their religious beliefs, they can post a sign in their business that says something like, hey, the services we provide are not an endorsement of the free speech associated with it, blah, 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 blah. No. I don't know why you would, because it's so obvious that you're not endorsing anything, but yeah. whatever. Amicus briefs started rolling in. So a lot of civil rights groups wrote briefs in support of Charlie and David. And when you total them all up, by the way, the Wikipedia page on this whole thing, mm, fabulous. Excellent. Uh, The briefs were pretty evenly split Mm -hmm. on both sides. I couldn't see that. Yeah. But the most notable brief was in support of Jack's side. Mm -hmm. Under the watchful eye of our Cheeto-in-Chief, The United States Department of Justice wrote a brief supporting Jack. In their brief, they said, Hey, anti-discrimination laws are awesome. We love them. Some of our best friends are (laughs) anti-discrimination laws. But let's not go crazy. Mm. These laws shouldn't be used to force a business into expressing speech that is against their own beliefs. And they shouldn't be used to force a business into providing goods and services without letting that business be like, hey, dudes, I'll sell you this photo session, but just know that I think you'll burn in a fiery pit for all eternity. Oh, my gosh. By the way, that's not a direct quote, Uh, but you know. I I picked up on that. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So both sides did their oral arguments, and the justices asked their questions, and experts who were watching this whole thing go down were like, oh, boy, this is going to be a close one. Yeah. People predicted that it would all come down to Justice Anthony Kennedy. Mm -hmm. He would be the swing vote. Mm -hmm. Okay, do you know anything about him? Uh, Very little. Okay, so this is why people were like, pulling their hair out. Mm -hmm. It was almost impossible to know where he would fall on this Mm -hmm. because, so number one, he's uh, pretty into gay rights, Mm -hmm. but also... Very Christian. Super into freedom of religion and super into a corporation's right to free speech, Mm. which... The notion that 
corporations are people is just beyond yeah okay anyway so you know he's he's got these beliefs yeah and it's like it's all coming to a head in yeah. this case and people were like which way do you go shit, he's yeah. gonna be the swing vote we have no idea where he's gonna land finally on june 4th 2018 the court issued its ruling they sided with masterpiece cake shop they did did you not know this no you didn't? No. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, they sided with Jack. Okay, this is very interesting that you did not know this. So you you thought that Charlie and David won, or did you not I remember it? I didn't remember how it, yeah. Okay, I have a theory on why you did not remember. Okay. So, and I'll get to that yeah. later. Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote the opinion, and you know how... These justices on the Supreme Court, you know, you always get some dissenters, you get some concurring, you get some, you know, like everybody wants to write their own little thing. Well, this one, a shocking number of people all kind of glommed onto the same opinion. Mm -hmm. We had Anthony Kennedy, John Roberts, Samuel Alito, Stephen Breyer, Elena Kagan, and Neil Gorsuch. And the opinion basically said that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission had been unfair about Jack's faith. They'd not taken into account his sincerely held religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. Anthony seemed particularly pissed about a statement that the commission made, which I think this came out in oral arguments. Mm -hmm. The commissioner said, freedom of religion and religion has been used to justify all kinds of discrimination throughout history, whether it be slavery, whether it be the Holocaust, whether it be, I mean... We can list hundreds of situations where freedom of religion has been used to justify discrimination. What do you think of that? It's probably true. I think it is factually true. But Anthony Kennedy thought that that statement in particular, you know, Mm -hmm. mentioning slavery, mentioning the Holocaust, was just way too out there. Mm -hmm. He was like, hey, we were supposed to apply the the law in a way that is neutral, toward religion, not hostile toward Mm. religion. So, my theory on why you did not remember which way this went down is because this is kind of a weird opinion. Like, he's not really... Obviously, he is taking a side. Yeah. He's taking the side of Masterpiece Cake Shop. But his opinion is so narrow... Mm Mm-hmm that it didn't have any broad sweeping implications yeah. for anyone. It was like a victory in a way for no, no one. one. Yeah. He didn't say, here are some guidelines for exactly what the government can do when they try to regulate a business in this situation yeah. or limits on what they should do. Yeah. Which is kind of, I, I think it's funny that he sided with them, but he didn't then say, this is how it should have gone down or this is exactly exactly. the way the error happened. It was just, you guys were dicks to this guy. Uh That is interesting. That's unusual. To me, it says, to me, it says he didn't really want to hear this case. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you know that, I mean, the Supreme court obviously picks and chooses what cases they want to hear. And it makes me think he didn't want to do this one. Yeah. Cause he didn't like, he didn't come down and make any kind of sweeping recommendations on either side. Mm-hmm. Um, 
It was all about this specific case and how the Colorado Civil Rights Commission had been unfair toward Jack. He mentioned that other case Mm -hmm. where the guy went to the different bakers and asked for Mm -hmm. the anti-gay messages. Um, And Justice Kennedy was like, you guys were being inconsistent there. You weren't being neutral in regard to religion, which I disagree with. I do, too. He wrote, the outcome of cases like this in other circumstances must await further elaboration in the courts, all in the context of recognizing that these disputes must be resolved with tolerance, without undue disrespect to sincere religious beliefs, and without subjecting gay persons to indignities when they seek goods and services in an open market. Wow. So, you know, again, like he, he affirms the rights of gay people. He says that Jack was treated unfairly, and yeah. that was that. That was it. The legal battle was over, but Masterpiece Cake Shop couldn't seem to stay out of the courtroom. I don't know when this time ha- guy has time to bake cakes. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to touch on this next thing very briefly because uh-huh. it's a huge thing. It's still ongoing. So oh, okay. I'm not I'm not promising yeah. I'm covering this thing completely. But in June of 2017, a Colorado lawyer named Autumn Scardian wanted a cake that would celebrate her gender transition. So where did she go? Masterpiece cake. Yes. <laughs> Which I think oh, come on. She had to she have, had been, to have yeah. been being shitty about yeah. that, right? Cuz why yeah. would you Why would you go there? Yeah. yeah. So she wanted a cake that was pink on the inside and blue on the outside, which I think is adorable. Yeah. And of course, Jack was like, no. No. Jesus will not allow me to make this cake. Jesus will let me make it. He said that due to his Christian beliefs, that people don't get to choose their gender, this, of course, turned into another legal battle. Of course it did. And again, I'm not going to get into all of it because it's still ongoing, not finished. But that is the story of Masterpiece Cake Shop. Wow. Yes. Huh. Yeah, no, I didn't know how that ended. What? I'm honestly surprised that that's the position that the Supreme Court took on it. I am too. Yeah. I am too. I really thought they would side with Charlie and David. So did I. Huh. Interesting. I I felt like they were trying to wiggle out of making a decision. That's on it. almost but what at, it feels like. But at the same time, that can't totally be right because they chose it. Yeah. Um. I just wonder. I wonder who wanted to take the case and who didn't. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. But you know, speaking of Supreme Court. Hey, we have inductions to do. We have inductions to Ooh. do. Okay, so induction time. If you are wondering how you can get inducted into the Supreme Court, we're so glad you asked. Yes, all you have to do is join our Patreon. Head on over to patreon.com slash LGTC podcast and join up at the Supreme Court level. There's also the appellate court and district court levels. Um, And you get an awesome sticker. You get an induction on an episode. And you get to be uh, super cool people like us. And you get to join the Discord. Did you oh, ever yeah. say Discord? I don't think I said the Discord, but the Discord's so fun. And you get to listen to bonus, bonus episodes. episodes. All right, so here we go. For this. Oh, oh, sorry. No, you. No, you, you should say it, it because it was your idea. Uh, so for this round of inductions, we are going to read the inductee's name and their favorite word. 
So everybody, please stand and place your hand over your left eye. (laughs) Tyler Dodd. Kerfuffle. Kyla Pitts-Zevin. Berm. Corey Squires. Fuck. Danielle Boline. Tum-Tum. Amber Ogles. Crepuscular Rays. Kelsey David. Mitsubishi. Janet Shepard. Petricor. Oh, it, and it means the smell of rain. I've always wondered, because there is such a scent. Yeah, there's such a scent. Oh, I'm sorry. Welcome Come to the Supreme Court! Ugh, amazing. I loved favorite words. Oh, that was just, I think it's so fun, because I, do you want, do, should we tell our p- favorite words? Sure. My favorite word is pants. Has been pants since I was like 12. Well, clearly you've not evolved. I've not. <laughs> um, no, I think one of the reasons I got so excited was Tyler Dodd was the first one to comment. He commented kerfuffle. Yeah. I love the word That's kerfuffle. True. Perfect. You can't have a serious look on your face when you say kerfuffle. No. Yeah. All right. Thank you to everyone who has already joined our Patreon. We appreciate your support so, so much. Um, as we mentioned, bo- a new bonus episode was just released. So uh, if you want to hear that, join on up. Uh, also, you know, while you've got your computer out, find us on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're on Reddit. We're on YouTube. We're all of those places. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we do cool things there sometimes. And then uh, while you're at it, head on over to iTunes. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. And then, once you've done all that, be sure to join us next week when we'll be experts on two whole new topics. Podcast Podcast adjourned! And now for a note about our process. I read a bunch of stuff, then regurgitate it all back up in my very limited vocabulary. And I copy and paste from the best sources on the web, and sometimes Wikipedia. So we owe a huge thank you to the real experts. For this episode, I got my info from Wikipedia, the LA Times, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. And I got my info from the Crime Library, NorthOmahaHistory.com, and the Omaha World Herald. For a full list of our sources, visit lgtcpodcast.com any errors are of course ours but please don't take our word for it go read their stuff 